think the first and most important thing is to try and get your ego in check. Like that, you can never learn anything if you think you don't have anything to learn. It is not the way to define success. And I actually really struggle with the concept of success now. I'm like, is that a tangible thing? Like it makes it sound like there's an end point. Like you get there, you get off the train and woohoo, success land. Like it's not real. It's a, it's a construct that we have created. What is it that will actually make me really happy? Is it money? No, money can't keep you alive. Like it's fruitless endeavor trying to chase dollars mm. and so really focusing on harmony I mm. think became really important for me and it's taken me a really long time to get there and I'm still working on that that's three years of like active practice towards changing who I am as a person and I guess what becomes my northern star welcome to the seize the yay podcast Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Holloway, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. There are so many people who have contributed time, wisdom and hugs to getting me to where I am today. But this week's guest is one who I can absolutely say I wouldn't have started without. In fact, Jess might just be the first person I ever told about the idea for Matcha Maiden and I'm forever grateful for her overwhelming love and support then and at every stage of the journey since. And it's no wonder I continue to turn to her for wisdom, being a co-founder of global skincare sensation Frank Body, as well as trailblazing creative agency Willow and Blake, and more recently a new gym, Frame Cremorne, with her husband. She has been a businesswoman laying the groundwork for the entrepreneurial boom that was to come, since before most of us had ever been exposed to startups and leaving corporate jobs to follow dreams. It's not often that your second job ever is your own business and even rarer that your second one explodes just a few years later. Starting with $5,000 and a production line of friends, family and whoever else they could get together, Jess and the four other co-founders of Frank Body grew the business to tens of millions of dollars of revenue in just a few short years. Theirs is the ultimate social media startup sensation story and there are a few corners of the world that Frank Body hasn't reached. It was a delight to hear the journey again and I can never hear it too many times. I've looked up to Jess for the longest time and I'm so grateful she joined the show to share some of her pearls of wisdom, biggest lessons and why Kifler potatoes are the best. Beautiful Jess. I'm so excited about this one. Me too. Oh my gosh, we've had such a long journey together. I know. I was thinking about that and I'm like, it's been a decade. Oh my gosh. Like it would have to be, roundabouts. Yeah. How are we old enough to have had a decade? Well, we were clearly only four when we met. (laughs) Absolutely only four. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it feels that way kind of though when I think back that far. Like at the first Lillo and Blake party. I know. We were babies. We were babies, weren't we? Yeah, you were still studying. Oh my gosh. I'm very sure you were almost finishing your law degree. I was not even in the workforce. No. And I was just in the workforce. And yet still you have shaped so much of my journey. Oh, likewise. Oh, come on. (laughs) If anyone has ever heard me speak before, you will have heard every single time I speak ever, 
part of the story is that I pitched to you guys first before I pitched to anybody else. Do you remember that yeah, Facebook message? I, <laughs> I think it was even before I told Nick. Really? I think it was. I think it was before the fiance. It was special. before the fiance. <laughs> who I'd been with so for like Nick. five minutes back then. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, yeah, you guys have just been so amazingly supportive and such role models but also leaders and always really really generous with your expertise and learnings and I'm so so grateful for it honestly wouldn't be here without you guys oh that is really really lovely you're gonna make me cry (laughs) it's true I, I seriously talk about you every single time I speak about the journey and how I you just need one person to believe in what you do only one I really think it's the one pitch that you do that you get a yes or no that really instructs the rest of it and it was you who was like babe do it doesn't what's the worst that can happen honestly it'll either work and go really well which it probably will or it won't you'll figure out something else you've got nothing to lose and I was like oh my god I can do it. I can do it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I remember people doing that for me. I think it's a really important part of what we do. It's Mm. that simple pay it forward mentality. Mm. Like people took the time, whether it's 30 seconds or five minutes or half an hour in their day, to give me that encouragement. Like if I couldn't do that for other people, then I'm like, am I allowed to cuss? I'm a pretty shitty human if I couldn't (laughs) spend five minutes doing it. And then there are times where I'm like, I don't have time to answer this and I have to like check myself. Like, you always have time yeah. to help someone else. Don't be so selfish. And also I think it doesn't actually take a lot of time to have a really big impact. Like one sentence is kind of enough to make someone believe. Yeah. It takes more time to carry the mental load of the guilt of not taking 30 yes. seconds to help someone. <laughs> or to think about how to politely say no. Yeah. I'm like, you know what, like, it's easier for me to just answer. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so I definitely want to get stuck into your way, TA, because again, it's just such an incredible story. I've heard it so many times, but I... I just, I can never hear enough of it. I think it's so exciting. But the very first question I start with always is what the most down to earth thing is about you? Definitely because from the outside, from now, I mean, without, everyone is, you know, an overnight success, but 10 years in the making. So from this end, looking backwards, it all looks very glamorous. I mean, this office is enormous and beautiful and your team is incredible. And like the stock cupboard that you have downstairs, you have so many SKUs. Like Frank is just this global phenomenon, which can be a little bit intimidating when you haven't met you as a person and know how down to earth you are. So tell us a little bit about Jess behind the scenes. Oh, I got really nervous trying to think what my answer would be for that as you asked that question. And like, I just kept going, I'm a potato, I'm a potato in my head. <laughs> yes. Okay, the fact that you even were thinking that is a great answer. Um, <laughs> you look nothing like a potato. That's, that's makeup. You should have seen me this morning. The down-to-earth part of my life is that I came into the office about 6am this morning and I literally, I w- work with my husband last night, I'm like, don't wake me up like literally any more than one minute before we need to leave. And so I roll in here unshowered, unkept, no bra on, just in my trackies that I slept in. <laughs> and that's how I start my working day for the first two hours until my team start to arrive. Like, I don't know. That's amazing. I'm just a normal person like everybody. There's nothing fancy here. <laughs> but I really am a potato and I love potatoes. Like, if I <laughs> could be a vegetable, I think I'd be a Kifler potato. That's a good... Why Kifler? Because they taste the best. Ooh. <laughs> I'd be... I'd probably have duck fat somewhere on my potato. Oh, yeah. Mm, the potato's um, a vessel for the duck fat. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I'd, know, I'd be a chat potato. <laughs> oh. Because I like the name. Chat. A chat potato. Yeah. It's like really sharp. It's short, sharp. And crunchy. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now that half the listeners have turned the podcast yeah. off, 
<laughs> Let's get into the real stuff. <laughs> I digress. So, away <laughs> TA. So, I love, you know, I obviously really, really want to share the story of Frank Body and its incredible growth, but I want to go way back before then because I think that's the really instructive part looking at who you were as a child and how all the dots connect, even if you didn't know it at the time. So, what was young Jess like? Like at school, before school, what kind of tutus did you wear? Were you a tutu girl? Were you a tomboy? And what did you think you wanted to be? I was this scrawny little thing. Like if you look back at photos of me, I look like an insect. <laughs> I was What insect would you be? Like a grasshopper or something oh, with really, you know, spin- spindly legs. <laughs> I was painfully shy, like a very, very shy person. I'm such an introvert. It's a learned behaviour to be confident in interviews. I was really studious. I loved school. I loved studying. I was lucky that I found it relatively easy and Mm. that kind of learning environment isn't necessarily easy for everybody because it's very, you know, structured and and aimed at a particular type of learning style. I was a ballet dancer, so you pinned me with the tutus. (laughs) (laughs) I did that for like 18 years of my life. I loved it. Yeah. I got to a point where I was in high school. I'm like, maybe I want to do that professionally. And then you have that really sad realization that you're not good enough to do it professionally. So I I was going to say like pivoted, pirouetted, I don't know, some bad pun (laughs) out of that life choice. You know, I love puns. But I was always writing. I loved it. And I remember this really defining moment in high school I wrote a political satire when I was in year nine and I started getting a lot of feedback from some of my teachers and they're like did your parents write this for you I'm like no (laughs) I'm just awesome awesome." (laughs) I just wrote it I loved it like you know if you read back now it would probably sound a little bit obnoxious but it was a really interesting creative outlet for me and having that feedback from people was probably my first step on the road to actually looking at writing as a career path until I met with my careers teacher who then basically shot that idea to hell and was like there are no careers in writing you'd be a fool to do that you could be a teacher or a nurse you know what it was like any children of the 80s and 90s listening yes there were very limited career options that were presented to you I wouldn't have even known what the word entrepreneur meant at that point in my life so was it even coined I don't know if I know if it did exist I'm not sure so. so that was me at school I was yeah, shy, studious, wanting to be cool, so uncool. <laughs> I love and that. And like, I carried that through to uni, and I, I found uni a big shock to the system. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So how? So you chose arts commerce. I chose arts originally. Okay. Um, and I transitioned into a double degree in my second or third year. Oh. Yeah, because I wanted to do some electives in that that I couldn't do in my arts course, and arts was. A fantastic course, but for anyone that's done it, largely unstructured. I so could see bored. myself getting to the end. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm going to be qualified to do with this degree. And I experienced a lot of what I would say, like anxiety and uncertainty through university. Mm. You know, you're put in this environment where you're so out of your depth. And I was this, I think I was maybe one of four kids from my school that got into Melbourne Uni. And I went to a very humble girls' school in the Western suburbs and everyone was from these much more privileged schools and much more privileged upbringings. I mean, still had a fantastic upbringing, but Mm. it was a really different environment to me. It was incredibly clicky. These kids had seen and experienced more than I ever could and I felt really out of my depth and I started to really lose my sense of self. And... Mm. I really wish now that I had done a gap year and I didn't do that. And I just found myself like flailing at university, like failing subjects, killing it at others, 
high one minute, low the next. And I was doing that for a few years and I, I was really disappointed with myself because I'd never been like that and no one ever explained that that was a state of being that you could feel. So I took some time off and I went travelling and I came home and I remember driving over the Westgate Bridge and I honestly, like five minutes before that, had been like, I just need a sign that maybe I need to switch my degree or focus in on something commerce related to potentially then do my honours in and it was literally going over the west gate and there was a big billboard at the end that was like study commerce and I was like <laughs> hello <laughs> thank you giant literal sign so I shifted my majors and again I still found it really like difficult I was kind of still flailing about and mm. I went into my honours course and that would have been about the time that you and I met and I was writing my music blog on the side and that was how I ended up getting offered the job at 360 Agency. Oh my god! Yeah, gosh. so I decided to leave my thesis that I'd just started and take this job because I knew an opportunity like that wouldn't come around again, but uni would be there if I wanted to go back yeah. and it changed the course of my life. That is so interesting. Mm. I can't believe I've never asked you that before. A lot of people don't know that, yeah. No, that's fascinating and it's so interesting to me and really reassuring, I think, to anyone who's listening that looking at you now, you could not imagine that you ever flailed. Like you couldn't imagine that Uh-oh. you were ever totally unsure, arms waving around everywhere, failing subjects here and there. Like people look now, like once you find direction, it looks like you've always had that. Mm. But you've got to remember that everyone to get there went through a phase of, what the actual fuck am I doing? Oh, totally. And that that's, that's part of the process. It's part of finding where you ultimately end up. It's not that anyone skips that. It's just that you hear from them after it. It's, and people don't share it enough. Mm. Like people, there's a lot of shame attached to saying, I'm unsure. I don't know what I want to do. I'm mm. not doing well at this. And I noticed, especially, you know, 15 years ago when I was in school, that was very much like it was just unsaid um, and there was no support structures around it. Mental health wasn't even a conversation that we were having behind mm. closed doors, let alone in public. Absolutely. So it's beautiful for me to see that it's actually really transitioned. And now some of the kids, I call them kids, some of the kids <laughs> that I interviewed, they have their shit together like I've never seen. <laughs> I'm like, wow. are they cyborgs? What yeah. happened? They could be. How do, you know, like, how do you, have you got your 10-year life plan mapped out? And they, they actually do. And that's almost as worrying to me as the opposite side where you're flailing about without any kind of plan. It's life becomes so regimented and they're so focused on these ever moving targets that they don't know how to just relax and kind of see where life will take them. It's Mm. a conundrum. I know. (laughs) Life is hard. hard. (laughs) (laughs) So you are one of the very rare people, which I think is so amazing that literally started the one, the first business out of your first job pretty much there were no like I did this and I did that and then I moved here and then I had this career change it was literally like left uni did my first job started my first business whoops (laughs) hello and again in such a different climate even though it wasn't temporarily that long ago it was such a different landscape there were not entrepreneurs left right and center it was quite a foreign concept I remember when you guys first started Willow and Blake to us even I was not even I don't even think I was a lawyer if I was it was first year and you just didn't hear that many stories of people especially that young just starting something yeah now it's you know a little bit more familiar so perhaps a little bit less daunting but for you guys it was like against the grain but 
in the time that you were at 360, where did you think you were going? Because I think that's really interesting as well, that sometimes people have this plan that they're, they're looking for an idea. Often they just have no idea. They're just like, okay, this is my first job or this is a job. I don't know where I'm going to go. Did, did you keep up your writing? Did you think at that time that you were going to have a career at 360 and management? You know, what did you think you were going to do? I had absolutely no idea. I was Mm. really fortunate to get the job at 360 because I worked very closely with the two founding entrepreneurs, Pete Sofo and Grant Smiley, and they exposed me. Like they were, um, they're amazing guys, and they exposed me to so many people, and they were incredible. Like that, you know, like anyone they could introduce me to, they would. Um, And I was doing a really weird combination of work, like head of publicity, social content, but then I was also doing like travel logistics and admin, like I just did whatever it was that they needed me to do. And I really appreciate people that come into a job with that kind of just tell me what I'll do and I need to do it. Yeah. And I'll learn on the go. (laughs) But I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I remember sort of talking with Grant specifically a lot about like trying to pitch these ideas and build my role into something else. But I reflect on it now and I wasn't commercially minded at all Mm. I was very much like what will make me happy and interested at work and like that's not a reason for someone to just give you a role like (laughs) you have to do a job it has to be financially viable and I was writing on the side I had my blog called who is Emily which was my music (gasps) blog do you remember that yes That was my baby at the start. I and totally forgot about that I until just now. I forgot about it until I found this amazing hard copied printout that a friend had made me oh, when I moved house last month. That's a beautiful idea. It was really nice. So we, myself and Ari and Bree were all writing and we decided to join forces and create this blog called Willow and Blake. And for us, it was really just that opportunity to write about things and people that we loved, you know people that didn't even exist like a lot of storytelling Mm. and we had again like no commercial sensibility like I don't think a lot of people go into writing because they want to make money (laughs) definitely don't think there are other careers you could (laughs) choose to do that (laughs) and I remember so hard when I was at uni pushing myself to do finance as part of my commerce part part of my degree and like I hated it and I wasn't good at it but I thought maybe I have to do something like this I can actually make a living and no, like it was really out of passion. We mm. just loved writing so much. And, you know, if you're willing to get up and go do a job before and after the job that you actually have, like I think it shows you that you're really passionate it's about something. Yeah. yeah. So I see people often searching for the idea rather than kind of focusing on being harmonious and listening to themselves and seeing Mm. what they're good at and what they're truly passionate about and often that can be more fruitful than trying to build the next unicorn in create the Warby Parker or the Uber of something like yeah I always think about that I think people often reverse engineer the lifestyle that they want they do rather than being open to finding a gap naturally yeah and then letting that flow into a business because it's it is it's really hard if you reverse engineer it that way you kind of force an idea that might not be a gap in the market anywhere exactly. it might not be needed yeah. or it might be something that you're not the target market for exactly. so you have no insight into it whereas you hear this you know repeated story of people literally stumbling across something that they wanted to do yeah. and then it turns into a business because of that personal connection and that personal passion yeah so short stories I had no idea what I was going to do yeah. um, <laughs> good answer I was like I don't know where 360 is going I don't know where my life is going and I'm okay with that I was 22 or something like that you yeah. know I was having fun I liked my job there were great perks I worked hard I didn't earn a lot of money you know yeah 
standard it's start out. Thing yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> so quite quickly, Willow and Blake went from a passion project where Nick was actually your photographer, was. which was so <laughs> cool. I'd forgotten about that too. And I think you guys were really the pioneers of storytelling. Before there were Q&As and events and community networking groups, you know, now you can hear the story of founders all over the place, but you couldn't I don't know, I feel like social media wasn't really a storytelling platform yet. There was a you following your friends, but there wasn't any like find new people who were doing cool stuff. You guys found cool people and used your incredible writing skills and copy to convey their story and then use really cool photography to make it interesting. It was just such an interesting platform at a time where you had no real means to discover randoms. How did you then change that into a business from a hobby on the side? Not being commercial-minded at the yeah. time. <laughs> so after we stalked everybody into doing interviews for us, the blog started to gain a lot of popularity and we had a decent social media following and it was, like, honestly, this, I look at the stuff that we posted and it was just meme after meme after meme. But that was, that was what you did 10 years ago and people loved it. It was, I guess, the enjoyment in their day. And no one had seen those, no one those had memes seen before. It. Like it just wasn't, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was 2011, guys. Just, come on, like, <laughs> I've got some classics in my phone. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, and it actually happened, so we were, so we started to get freelance inquiries. So it actually came to us first. Um, mm. And we thought, okay, like, there's something in this. And we started doing little bits of piece of copywriting on the side. And that's all I would have called it, copywriting. And then one day we're like, there's no one actually doing this. Like, why are people coming to us? Like, we're these three young girls at that point. We're Mm. only in our early 20s. There's clearly a gap in the market. And even when we would see, you know, design agencies do websites and that kind of stuff, the copy was atrocious. Like, there was no one focused on it. Mm. We're like, okay, maybe there's something in this. Mm. So we're like, okay, you know what? We'll finish up these major projects that we have at work and then we're going to resign and we're going to start our own business and we'll just kind of see what happens. (laughs) I think you guys had 5K in the kitty. We had... That was Frank. We had no K. Zero K. Like, (laughs) negative K in the kitty. (laughs) Eri and I woke up on our first day of work and we're like, so... What do we do? And we're like in our pajamas in the living room. We're like, how do you do business? How does this work? <laughs> so we spent the day like Googling all that stuff. Like, how do you set up a business? How do you register a company? Relying on her bed, just like typing away. And then I was sitting on the roof. I'll never forget this. And she went out to the grocery store and forgot I was there and locked me on the roof. And I got stuck on the roof of our house for like the next four hours <laughs> in the baking sun. And that was wow. my first day of running a business. Woo, glamorous. <laughs> but it was one of our friends who you know as well, Christian. Klein. Oh my god! Yeah. So he came to us and he's like, "I've ordered twenty thousand pairs of plastic shoes from China. I need help selling them." And oh, that was jelly, what we jelly beans. Yeah, that was what yes. we eventually turned into jelly beans, and that was our first branding and tone of voice and content creation job. And he was amazing. He took a chance on us. We took a chance on him, and mm. that was really like the first time that we decided to create UGC, which mm. was like all the feet photos of feet in the sandals yeah. and build a social content strategy to grow a brand. And that was, yeah, 2011. Oh my gosh, I remember that campaign. And it really did seem at the time like you guys had already been doing that for a while. I don't remember it as your first venture at all. Yeah, that was our first 
big one. Um, wow. And for us, I guess it, we were somewhat digitally native. Like we kind of just yeah. grew into using those platforms and it just made sense for us. Like mm. we have 20,000 shoes, we can find 20,000 people, kabam, kabam, let's sell stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess it worked because he sold all of those shoes. Oh my gosh. And it really was a time where I don't think I'd even heard the word copywriting until you guys had ex- were ex- literally just explaining what you were doing. And I was like, you mean like like legally yeah, yeah. like IP copyright like I never even heard the word copy you would someone I remember actually asked us like so do you like draw the C with a circle around it <laughs> I'm like yeah that's all I do all day I just draw C's and I put a circle around different it. shape <laughs> different colors <laughs> oh my gosh that's so cool and it re- I mean you guys were literally riding the wave of the first time anyone needed any of this stuff yeah. and could put a value on it and then just turned it into a business which is so amazing and you were so young at the time I honestly remember I ran into you at Il Fineo once and I was like what are you doing in the middle of the day here like I was on uni holidays and you're like this is I'm, got I'm a work working. meeting yeah. yeah and it was the first time like I said you've had so much impact on my life it was genuinely the first time my mind had opened to people creating their future people creating their life and just living outside of the boxes that everyone else thinks that you live in and at such a young age I was like <gasps> What is she doing? Yeah. <laughs> I was faster a meeting. Yeah. <laughs> so I do what I want to move on to the Frank story, and I know that you know that's something that you guys have spoken a lot about. So I don't want to spend too much time on it because I have so many other questions for you. But I do want to know in founding two businesses at such a young age without much experience or kind of actual studies or qualifications in those areas and being an introvert which is something you said before that really triggered me in my mind thinking about learned behaviors in this process of upskilling literally how have you done that how have you found the areas that you're like I'm not good at that like I have to, you have to be extroverted when you run a business at the beginning you have to be salesy you have to be able to you know you did well of like parties you had to do those branding exercises but you have to also create the skills in yourself to be an extrovert or to be a salesperson or to be a CFO, as we were talking about before. How do you do that? It was a really interesting journey for me because when we were trying to do it with Willow and with Frank, everything would start out written because you would stalk people via email or Mm. some kind of social media platform. So I could make myself sound incredibly extroverted because that's how, that was my medium. Like that's my jam. I can write really well. Then I'd get to that meeting and I'd be like, fuck, like now I have to sound out loud (laughs) on the spot like I do when (laughs) I've prepared this email. And I would be nervous and hyperventilating before these, you know, coffee catch-ups that I had organized, but because it just was so far out of my realm of comfort. Yeah. I just wing it. And I found over time, at first, your ego gets in the way and it doesn't allow you to see what you're not good at and you mm. feel the pressure to be good at everything and it's why people fail mm. because they don't want to acknowledge. It takes a lot of work to say, I'm not good at that. I need someone else who's better than me at that. Mm. And I think that becomes the key to building a really successful business is don't try and continue to be the smartest person in the room. Like You need to be surrounded by experts who know what they're doing and who can outsmart you on anything because that's why they're there to like mm. help you grow stuff. So that was a big learning for me. Bree and I both worked with a business coach for about 18 months. Wow. Yeah, together and individually with this one coach. And he was fantastic. He really helped us, I guess, critique and analyse. Yeah. Yeah. 
and I just read everything. Like I'm that crazy book lady. I'm always <laughs> buying people books. I love the Harvard Business Review. I think it's like fantastic, you know, really well-researched essays. Um, I listen to a ton of podcasts. Like I think there's so many ways you can learn. Mm. I'm always asking people questions and yeah, I I think the first and most important thing is to try and get your ego in check. Like that, you can never learn anything if you think you don't have anything to learn. That is so valuable, such valuable yeah. advice. And mm. it is, it's a very ego-driven process because it, you are putting yourself out there. Suddenly you're not working for a company that you can hide behind. You're literally like, here I am, yeah. naked. Exactly. <laughs> and like you need to learn how to cop feedback and criticism on the chin and I remember yes. being so defensive and like they just don't get it this isn't my fault yeah. and I'm like my tone is amazing I, like, what do you mean I live in a world where I never make any mistakes like it's <laughs> physically impossible like, yeah. it's so stupid to think and behave like that mm. so learning to receive feedback in the spirit of which it's intended which is not to make you feel shit you are not your work it is just that this piece of work didn't fulfill the brief or didn't hit the mark and that's okay water off a duck's back understand why and do it again yeah. and like that's something we really try and instill in the team here and I'm really proud of the team here like they've really taken to that approach and I think it's what enables them to do such great work oh amazing Thank so you. inspiring <laughs> <laughs> so 2013 mm -hmm. the beginning the beginning of the beginning dun, dun. <laughs> so you started a global phenomenon called Frank Body two years into your business journey Tell us how it started. I know it was literally one of those happy accidents, Steve's Cafe, but give us a story yeah. straight from the horse's mouth. There's so <laughs> many moving parts to that story as well. Mm. So we'd had Willow for a few years and we were growing into a full service branding agency and we still operate as that. And we're known for boundary pushing, esoteric copy. Like you don't come to Willow and Blake if you want an idea that's already been done. You come to us if you want something really original. And we had clients coming to us for that and then you would show them these kind of risky ideas and they were intimidated by them. Mm. You know, you have to really back yourself to go in with something like that. And often it was like, oh, it's great, but we just feel that too out there. it's too out there, we're scared, can you do something like this and insert competitors' marketing campaign that they wanted to replicate. And we never wanted to do that. And we thought the only way we can actually really convince people is to sort of put our money where our mouth is and build something from scratch ourselves. So that was how the people in Willow really started to come at this project. And then my partner at the time and Bree's now husband were also really interested in e-commerce and we're like, there's something in this. Like we can see that social is about to boom. We know we can use that platform. We're almost in a way like being those people that I said before, like hunting for the idea. <laughs> but we weren't just hunting for the idea. We, there were no ambitions for us to make money. It was like the idea was there. It was use social media to market to millennial women selling through an e-commerce platform in the health and wellness category. Like it was a pretty well-defined business model. We mm. were literally just looking for that final product that we were going to sub in and we tried so many really random and terrible ideas. <laughs> I didn't realise that it had been kind of brewing. It had been brewing. <gasps> brewing. brewing. <laughs> it had been brewing for like, not that long to be honest, like yeah. six, eight months. Yeah, um, yeah, but it was in your mind. Yeah, yeah, it was in our minds and we were trying, you know, we were sort of having a think about different things we wanted to do and then it, exactly like what you said before. So Steve owned a series of cafes and he had a woman that would come in and like ask for the leftover grinds. And a lot of people would come in and ask for grinds to take home and use as garden fertilizer. This one woman used to take them home because she liked using them in her bathroom. And he came to us and he's like, I've got this idea. What about this is the product? 
So we started Googling it and nothing existed except DIY recipes. And mm-hmm. so we started making some ourselves. And I, you would have heard this part of the story, how we like got in the shower and like you <laughs> yeah. look like the swamp man when you come <laughs> out and you're like, this is so sexy. But our skin felt incredible and it was 100% natural. It was using things that we had in the kitchen. And you know, as we grew as a brand, we continued to refine those formulas, but it was really humble beginnings and we made it all ourselves by hand mm, we I had remember that oh <laughs> yeah remember. did you ever visit the packing line that was hilarious <laughs> god we have some good friends uh, it was like us at freezing warehouse 20 people in a row with bottles of wine and we'd just pick a series and we'd watch the episodes on the giant tv as we packed and labeled human conveyor belts make great friendships oh my god just so they really do and like some of those people went on to then move into like entry-level positions. You know, they were studying or working at cafes at the time. Mm. One of them is now our retail brand manager. Really? The other one went on to work with us all the way through our logistics team and is now the logistics manager at GoTo. Like it's incredible that they're really smart women and they were willing to do the hard work and willing to take that entry-level role to learn. And it makes me really proud to see what they're doing it's such a testament to you guys as well that you have kept some people all the way along since then that's incredible yeah it's pretty cool and everyone's it. kind of evolved with yeah, the business they all grow and like it's amazing watching them grow into these like they were already really smart wonderful women but like really come into their own and mm. find their niche and expertise and for them not to all follow the norm like It'd be really easy, I think, in a brand like ours for everyone to be like, I want to do social PR and marketing. And like, they are fundamental aspects of what we do. But, but there's, there's other stuff. Like critical business operations, logistics, finance, retail, sales, where there are amazing career opportunities and they can often get overlooked. And it was really nice to see the team members kind of spread their wings into their domains that they felt were best for them. Oh, that's Yay. amazing. But yeah, back to 2013. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe sure. Like it was a really long time ago, but it also wasn't really that long ago at Honestly, the same time for how you've literally become a global name. Like everybody, like it's not just within Australia, it's not just a small startup, it's a literal global booming business. I think by 2017, you guys had moved 2 million units huge change from you just packing them by yourselves in a production line and like we're expecting an annual sales of like 20 million dollars like it's just extraordinary the figures that I can't I mean I know you guys I was there the whole time and I still can't get my head around it that extraordinary growth is probably not something that every single business owner can identify with but they can definitely I'm sure identify with the the crazy roller coaster that is scaling up and going from you know, a DIY operation to an actual fully fledged, polished business, whether it's 20 million or 1 million or whatever it is. Firstly, how did that process feel going from an imposter to, oh my God, we've actually, we're actually globally recognized by millions of people. And then how did you acclimatize to that? Mm. What point did you start to feel successful and you know, a, a kind of not comfortable, but just accomplished. Like, when did you get to the point where you were like, this is real, this is happening, we're an actual business? And how did you manage with five founders? I mean, that's also a big challenge. Oh, yeah, it was hard. None of us had any idea what this business would grow into. It was like humble beginnings, maybe we can make some extra beer money and mm. our weekend activities are covered. Like, that was <laughs> what we were talking about. Yeah, that's what I was actually going to ask. What was your expectation of the furthest it could ever go, like best case scenario? Didn't have one. Like, we didn't have one. If, if someone had said, like, do you think this business could make a million dollars? I'd be like, oh, 
Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. Like that was more money than I could ever comprehend. Yeah. I had grown up like, you know, working full time, earning a $30,000 wage. Like mm. I was, a million dollars was un- incomprehensible. So when the business started to perform really, really well, I think like any founder that's found themselves in that position, you don't know how to take it. Mm. The money goes to your head and you start to become focused on the wrong things. And I think money can change people a lot. I've seen it change people and not necessarily for the better. It takes your head out of the game. It makes you think you're invincible. Mm. And that was something that we really experienced. Like the business, like the trajectory was just north. Like Mm. it was just growing and it wasn't even a factor in our minds that that might not continue. That might change one day until all of a sudden it started to change one day. And I think you it's a really dangerous cycle to get yourself into because your self-worth becomes defined by mm. money and the things that you own and what people think of you. Like, it's such a shitty, toxic way to live. And I know you've talked with other people about this. Like, I remember listening to your interview with Erin and she mm. was expressing the same thing and her and I have talked about that too. It's like, it is not the way to define success. And I actually really struggle with the concept of success now. I'm like, do I even... Is that a tangible thing? Like it makes it sound like there's an end point. Like you get there, you get off the train and woohoo, success land. Like it's not real. It's a it's a construct that we have created. And I think that's only something that I've learnt through time. And mm. I think got experiencing plateaus. Like so the business grew astronomically. And then 2016, 2017, everyone started to experience the changes of, you know, new algorithms, more competitors in the market, you know, a stampede of entrepreneurs launching products. So you were sort of fighting for attention and real estate in this space that had just been like white space until then. So that was one of the hardest points of my career where everything had kind of worked out how we wanted it to until that point. And then all of a sudden what we were doing wasn't working anymore. And that was kind of when I went through all of that work addressing what don't I know how to do? What part of this is me? What part is my ego? What is it that will actually make me really happy? Is it money? No, money can't keep you alive. Like it's fruitless endeavor trying to chase dollars. Mm. And so really focusing on harmony, I Mm. think became really important for me. And it's taken me a really long time to get there. I'm still working on that. That's three years of like active practice towards changing who I am as a person and I guess what becomes my northern star so it was, it was that was my acclimatizing I kind of fell all the way down the mountain <laughs> and then picked yourself down that strip, right up again. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. that is such a hard thing about a world where you can grow exponentially and change your life at a rate that's too fast for anyone to mm-hmm. kind of manage comfortably I think if you had more time to uh, you know get used to it along the way you'd still have time to touch base with your values but in a world like this where you go from like literally packing it yourself to multi-million dollar business in like what how long did that happen like a year less yeah it's too fast and then you do spend a long time because eventually every business that has gone through that has plateaued because that's just the model because Instagram changes something we have no control over and then suddenly you've got to detach your identity from that and that's really the whole point of the podcast is to investigate what people think is success and how that changes over time, how they find themselves in that mess of like work and productivity and goals and metrics. And I actually very rarely ask people what they think is successful because I think the better question is what makes you happy. Yeah. And it stops 
that conversation. But in the context of you guys being undeniably successful, I thought it would be really interesting to ask what your interpretation has been over time. Yeah, I think my answer to that question has shifted year by year. Yeah. So I've been asked it time and time again, and I think sometimes my answer is doing what you love. And then it became doing what makes you happy. And then it became seeing the success in others. And I think so because success isn't a real measurable, tangible thing, it's fluid and it's going to shift depending on where we are and who we are and who we're with and uh, like the people that we surround ourselves by will ultimately determine how we felt, how we determine success. Mm. So it really became about, I sound, I sound like a broken record saying harmony, but that is what it became about for me because I felt so out of balance. I was burnt out. I was stressed, you know, my relationship fell apart friendships fell apart like there were a lot of shitty things that came with growing this business and I became disconnected from certain people and out of touch with certain parts of reality and it took a lot of work for me to get back to a point where I was actually proud of who I was and Mm -hmm. happy with who I was Um, and I could see that happen with a lot of people who were working in a similar space to me so yeah success to me is like realizing that it's actually not a real measurable thing that's so interesting it's i think it's more a feeling than like a place or a destination yeah yeah it's a tough one it's a tough one because the feeling can change totally like it's so subjective isn't it yeah so i think just trying to focus on being balanced is and the like best at thing peace. i can do and at peace yeah. Let's be frank, beautiful people. As you're hearing, Jess and the Frank Body team have built an incredible, extensive range of natural skincare. But the OG coffee scrub stole my heart way back at the beginning and remains my fave to this day. There's a reason this superstar scrub became a cult favourite, propelling Frank Body onto the global stage and it remains the number one product in the range, selling over 5 million to date in 156 countries. Based on a luscious blend of coffee, Coffee, sweet almond oil, sea salt and vitamin E, the OG scrub is 100% natural, vegan and cruelty free and it's a permanent resident of our bathroom. The results speak for themselves, with all of us coming back over and over not only for the irresistible scent, but the soft, smooth and supple skin it leaves you with even after just the first time and its ability to help with stretch marks, cellulite, breakouts and even skin conditions like eczema and psoriasis. Who doesn't love to get down and dirty in the bathroom and come out smoother than a baby's bottom? Find out more at frankbody.com slash CZA. So from a, just pulling out the practical side of growing a business, you know, for anyone who is out there as an aspiring business owner, along the way, what were, like, how, how did you physically do the steps of transforming from doing everything yourself to then outsourcing and then growing this big and finding office spaces and then you guys ended up you know opening you made some big decisions of not wholesaling at the beginning and then changing that a little while ago and partnering with really big amazing outlets around the world and then a US office like there's been so many different stages that even on a smaller scale I think can be really relatable to smaller businesses in the scale up process. What are some of the practical things you did to make that happen? Because I think sometimes it just looks like it's, I can't even, looking at this office, I can't even remember a Frank that was you guys packing in a kitchen, but it it, it was that. Yeah. So how do you make that transition? And, and what, what do you look for first? And how do you balance all the different factors of different departments and different people and needs? Yeah, how, do you, how did you do that? 
God, I, that's a really tough one to answer. I feel like I need a book. <laughs> Step one. Um, we, be, being humble was really helpful. So don't try and get the fanciest office space you can. Like we worked in a cupboard. I kid you not. It was like a cupboard, the first office. It was so cold. It had no heating. So just like do what's practical. Yeah. We didn't have the type of office that we have now. Like it was a shithole for the first yeah. five years. <laughs> yeah. And it was by working our asses off that we actually bought furniture that wasn't found on the side of the street for the first time. Like, so yeah. Grow into Bring it. yourself back down to reality. Yeah. Step one. Step two. Those jobs that are often really overlooked and thought of as like the lowest in the food chain, like customer service and customer experience are actually the most important jobs. Mm. So if you don't want to do it or you're not going to prioritise it, hire somebody who will. And if you're not going to put value on that, then you need to really consider whether you should be in business because you don't have a business without customers. So, so true. practical steps, humble office, hire someone in customer service, cross your I's and dot your T's. So really going back and making sure that we had the correct trademarks, that we were set up in a viable company structure that would facilitate growth globally. And like, we made so many mistakes. So don't try and do that stuff yourself. Like, (laughs) you can get affordable lawyers and affordable financial advisors. Like, you don't need to go to the best of the best. Just get someone who knows it better than you do. And in that case, that was anyone because we'd never done that before. (laughs) And we like, we ran into so many trades. Yeah, low bar. (laughs) Can you hop over that high jump? Great. Like, we made so many mistakes. We were frank. We weren't frank body. Like, that was a very strategic change because we didn't get the proper... Uh, trademarks in all of the regions that we wanted to grow into so we had to change our name like there's so many freaking things that happened that people maybe just don't know about because they didn't yeah, notice those changes or they hadn't seen the brand yet and then building out an organizational chart was one of the best things that we did and if you've got business partners being really clear on having you know delineated yeah, delineated roles. roles if you all try and mush everything there's no accountability and so kind of instilling a culture of accountability is the best thing that I can advise even if there's two people you can each of you can still be accountable for certain things <laughs> yeah Nick and I have yeah. business meetings you do, you it's like, to. yeah sometimes people are like but you two are always together I'm like I know but we start the business meeting and then we end the business meeting and then we have dinner yeah. <laughs> and then we finish walking the dog and oh. go back to normal <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's so true and I just consumed media like podcasts like this I I still do like I'm always listening to them because I think if you ever think that you've stopped learning Mm. then you are doomed so I'm always looking at people whose not necessarily business is bigger than me but perhaps are doing something better than I could or are more advanced and trying to learn from them and just be better at the things that I'm not as good at Mm. I think um something you said about being the smartest person in the room there's a quote that I love which is if you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong Mm -hmm. room and also everyone else always knows something that you don't so if you've got a situation where you're in a room and you're like this is an awkward room and networking's awkward and blah 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 just make a point of going and finding out one thing that someone else is better than you at because there's always something always (laughs) and it's just like really tough spot when you are an entrepreneur or in some kind of senior leadership position you are looked at like an oracle. Like, totally. I look at you as an oracle. But you're te- my oracle. But you're n- I'm not. Like my team will look at me and be like, so what's the answer? I'm like, potatoes. Like, <laughs> again, like... Kipfler potatoes. Yeah, <laughs> like you, you put that pressure on yourself to really try and know the answer to everything and mm. you can't. So it's yeah. like finding that sweet spot of leading with purpose and leading with authority, but then it's okay to be vulnerable. And yes. so I think that's one of the best things that I've learned as a leader and not something that I knew about when I was starting my businesses. So 
there's so much literature you can read on that. There's actually something I find really interesting that you just made me think of as well is that having male business partners and also having a business where three powerful women started it and there were no men as partners, have you found that being a founder or not just a founder but a leader, whether in corporate or not, as a woman, that there's a really hard balance between likability but being firm enough that you get good results but also... Like, I think sometimes if you're a ball breaker and you exhibit really masculine tendencies, you get the job done, but then you sacrifice on your likability in a way that you wouldn't if you were a man. Like, have you ever found that being a woman, like you've had to handball things to the guys when you're dealing with suppliers or in dealing with cultures that aren't the same as ours? Has that been a problem for you along the way? Uh, Yes and no. Not with our internal team because I try not to look at them as inherently feminine or masculine traits. Mm. I think that we all have emotional and logical capabilities and something I really had to learn was how to approach things a lot more logically sometimes that would be described as a masculine trait I think you can you get better results by not being a ball breaker people do great work for people that they respect so that's always been my approach to leadership like I would never yell at someone like (laughs) oh I can't even imagine doing that yeah my team probably gets sick of me sending passive aggressive slacks about the state of the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. But I will stop it's doing that when approach. you do your dishes. <laughs> to everyone listening, just FYI. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm not perfect. Like, I totally know there'll be some days when I'm more snappy than I should be and I check myself on that shit. But as a woman, I mean, there have been times when I walk into a room uh, and I'm 33 years old and there'll be a middle-aged white man that says... Hi, girls, you've done such a great job. And, like, I'm sitting there with Bree, who's pregnant with her first child. We've built two businesses with 40 employees and we're responsible for millions worth of dollars. And I've got this man across the table who's like, Oh, Sweetie. girls, Jal. And I just, like, want to jump across the table and punch his lights out. But, you know, I'm a respectable woman and I yeah. won't do that. I'll just that's call him names beast. behind his back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's – I used to get so angry about it and – oh my God, I'll send you this link that I wrote, this rant on Medium later. I can't wait. But I I realise it's about them. It's not about me. That's their outlook on the world. And if I choose to let it be about me, then it's going to destroy my day, my week, my month. And I can Mm. be like, you know what? He's narrow-minded. He's obviously got some kind of issue about this. I'm just going to go about my business. That's his thing. Yeah, totally. So, no, I like to try and deal with stuff myself and just deal with it in what I think is a respectable but efficient way mm. yeah very mature very mature <laughs> mature mature not what as about... much anymore. yeah <laughs> <laughs> what about what's obviously been a really big part of your business but has obviously involved a lot of pivots and is quite a hot topic this week of all weeks which is instagram and social mm-hmm. media so you've been in business for the whole span of its incredible rise and the algorithm and then all these changes like you've been in the landscape for a lot of different phases and have had businesses at different stages at different times. How has it worked out for you? What have been the highs and lows? Are there any insights you can give from, you know, building Frank to this huge global and highly engaged audience? Um, I remember I, I think I caught up with you guys at a, when you had hit like, five, you know, half a million followers and then that had happened in like a, a minute and then the next 100,000 was like, pulling teeth yeah Yeah. (laughs) like how has that whole landscape been for you 
And, and if there are any tips that you think are still relevant now. It's really tough. I have a really big love-hate relationship with Instagram and I'm sure you do too. <laughs> Don't like, we, all? <laughs> we were fortunate enough to build a business and a lifestyle with that platform. And I don't know what I would be doing if I didn't have those kind of social media platforms to use. But I found myself just as a consumer, like I would, I was like a zombie. I did not even realize, like I would close the app and open it again. I'm like, I just closed it. (laughs) My thumb isn't even connected to my body anymore. What is going on? So I'm like, and if I'm experiencing this, I'm a I hate to use the word busy. I've got a lot of stuff to do. Like I don't really have time to just be mindlessly scrolling through Instagram and a lot of people don't. And if I'm behaving like this, what are other people doing? How are we consuming media? And there's a lot of responsibility as a brand that is constantly putting content out there for people to consume. Obviously we want them to read it because we want them to make, we want it to make them smile, but there's a commercial sensibility behind it as well. Like we're still a business trying to make money. And finding that balance has been so tough. And then especially as the platform started to change. So we, you're right, we went through that like astronomical growth and then everything just like flatlined. <laughs> I, I remember that. Like, Not just I for you, for everyone. We were like, what, how what, do, what? Yeah, like, how do I make this work? And there was so much pressure because that was my domain, a breeze domain. And so everyone's looking at us, you know, from potential investors in the company, media, founders, team, like, so what are you doing? And I'm, it was that Oracle moment. And I'm like... <laughs> I don't well, know. I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't working anymore. Yes. Um, and so, like, there was that feeling of self-doubt and I'm like, I don't know how the fuck I am going to grow this business. And I and Bree mostly are responsible for bringing new customers to our brand, mm-hmm. showing the customers that we have our new products. And if our main channel for doing that is no longer working, what are we going to do? So, enter flailing. <laughs> we're back to flailing. We're back to flailing. <laughs> so we were trying everything and like, you know, we like every other brand working with influencers, that sort of started to plateau or it became really unfun. Like it was so uneconomical to work with a lot of influencers, even though they were fantastic businesswomen that had grown these pages. Like mm. we literally just couldn't afford to work with them because we weren't seeing the same returns anymore. So for like for with every brand I know we experienced this with Frank, we experienced it with our clients at Willow. It was about resetting and looking at how that platform was now pay to play. I think it stabilised a lot. Like we're seeing good growth there organically. We're working with influencers, I think, in a much more collaborative sense that's beneficial for both parties. Mm. But it is tough. Like I really have to try and maintain, I guess, reasonable expectations for our clients at Willow and Blake because... They look at Frank as our case study, but often it's easy to forget that Frank launched six years ago in a very different, you know, digital environment. Mm. So maintaining expectations, and it's hard when you're looking at brands like we get compared to Glossier all the time. They've had $54 million worth of funding. Like, yeah. No fucking wonder <laughs> they're growing. And I'm like, <laughs> if you give me $54 million, I can do that too. Like, <laughs> How wonderful though to get to the stage where you're being compared to brands like that. It's just it's phenomenal. It's really hard at the same time yeah, because you can never live up to the expectation of a brand that has the resources like a hundred times your size. Mm. So yeah, it's tough. And then I just have to remind myself, all I can do is what I can do. Um, exactly. And you know, for the first time in a long time, we're actually experiencing follower growth. Like we were just flat or declining or it'd spike up and then it'd drop off. So for anyone listening, like 
you are not alone if yeah. you are finding this challenging. <laughs> like, if you look at us and think we're a brand that have our shit together, but yeah, we've got our shit together, but we're still humans at the end of the day dealing with the same platform. Um, it really came down to not trying to fit a square peg in a round hole and the yes. content that we'd been producing wasn't working in the same way that it used to. So it became about revisiting who we are as a brand, not changing, like don't just throw things out the window, but just Tweaking. tweak really slightly and then you start to find what people care about. Yeah. Yeah. Content is still really like, you know, truly quality content is the key. Yeah. So I have so many more questions, oh my God, about Go Frank, it. but I feel like I'm just going to pick one more before we move <laughs> on. You guys have just had so many exciting things happen lately and such a huge expansion of your range with just so many things coming out. It's so exciting, like the A Beauty box and big collaborations. So what are you most excited about in Frank at the moment? Oh, like what are the things that are coming out or so the things many. that have come out? Yeah, what do you, you know, I imagine that it's hard to be, because you have this huge expectation, it's hard to bring out new stuff all the time. Yeah. What are you now at the moment having, you know, joy about? Oh my God, that's a really tough one. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to answer this in three parts because okay. I'm really proud of two things that people can see out there at the moment, mm-hmm. which is the hair duo. <gasps> like, it's so good. I love it. And we spent a really long time formulating that and it works amazingly like you should see the results that people in this office had it was pretty phenomenal so I'm really proud of that it's actually sold out on the Australian store oh. as of today but by the time you listen to this hopefully we might have be back in stock, stock. Back. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really proud of that the response was amazing I'm so proud of the a beauty box that's incredible I remember when Brie and I sat down and we're like okay this isn't about selling scrub this is about taking Australian beauty to the masses and we can't do that alone like we need to partner with other brands and like get that idea of brands being competitors out of our minds Mm. like I love these brands they're like great quality products led by amazing strong women like let's work with them and they were so receptive too so that's been a really beautiful project like when we get everyone in the boardroom and I'm like looking around at all these women I'm like fucking girl power yeah Yeah. we can do this it's really nice so I'm really proud of those two things I'm very excited about them We've got a lot of new products coming out for holiday. Yeah. So exciting. So watch this. I'm like, how can I give you a clue? If anyone (laughs) remembers Shimmer, just. Didn't you have like 50,000 people on the wait list? We did. Yeah. We have sold (laughs) hundreds of thousands of those Shimmer scrubs. And like, it's such a cool product. And there were issues with the formula that we definitely needed to improve. So. There's something interesting in the shimmer space coming. Ooh, mm. that was a great clue. Yeah. I'm so excited. Not for a little while, so, you know, don't get annoyed at me if you don't see it next <laughs> week. <laughs> okay, so you've kind of covered some of the things in the next section, which is NATA, but it's pretty much just all the stuff that's gotten in your way. You know, stuff from behind the scenes that doesn't usually make you know, it doesn't get airtime a lot of the time because firstly, it doesn't bring joy. Secondly, usually you've moved on from it and don't (laughs) want to talk about it ever again. But also I think it's just not glamorous. But I think it's the platform to be the most relatable and to get through to other people by showing that, you know, there are tough times. So what have been the biggest? You mentioned self-doubt, burnout. I imagine being such a tight-knit group of people as well. Like there's a couple who are married now and having a baby. You know, you and Brie are best friends. We've known each other for years. There would be haters and copycats, like all these things. What have been the biggest challenges for you along the way? The biggest challenge for myself is managing my high expectations of myself and Mm. other people. Uh, And Brie and I talk about this a lot because she sort of suffers from the same thing. Mm. And because of that, we're really susceptible to burnout. We 
try to manage our stress as best as we can. I don't think we get stressed as much as we used to, but we definitely get overloaded in terms of the sheer capacity of work that we can take on. So I've burnt out, like burnt to the ground, got really sick and had to build myself back up again from there. And now I know I need to take time out before that happens and I still feel guilty about it like even though there's no reason to like (laughs) yeah my founders are so supportive they're like yeah I thought I took myself to Glingana about six weeks ago for the first time I've never done a health retreat in my life I'm like you work hard go on a retreat it was beautiful and I came back like a new human and I did it well done before I got sick before burnout and I think that's one of the best things that anyone can do Mm. yeah and it's hard to know because like that you you respond we're very reactive we respond to signs Sorry. but it's too late then yeah you need to kind of preempt yourself yeah and I've hit that low low and I just I don't want to do that to my body and my mind again so mm. and it comes with the territory mm. I think especially for entrepreneurs it can be really lonely yeah I, I'm so lucky I have my founders that I do my co-founders they're also my best friends and then mm. it can be so easy to forget to be friends because you're in business mode all the time so then you don't have your friend and you don't necessarily make friends at work in the same capacity as other people do because you have a different relationship with your employees as they do with each other and I can't express how much it makes me happy watching the people that we have here like make hang friends. out on the weekend oh, make so friends cute. like I'm always squealing <laughs> like I'll show Dan I'm like look these people are hanging out but it can be really lonely yeah um and so coupling that with the stress and the burnout it's a lot especially even for people who are kind of creatively minded I think we're even more susceptible to those feelings of burnout and anxiety and depression and so learning how to manage that and learning how to talk about it like this and Mm. share that story with other people so that they can try and navigate it themselves is really important Mm. well thank you thank you so much for sharing it (laughs) what about self-doubt in maybe not so much now but when you're first putting out new things or when you're first as an introvert going out to do a speaking gig or you guys have had such incredible recognition for the amazing work that you've done with like the Verve Click Co Awards and amazing things, but they require you to definitely be out of the show. Like, does that, you know, do you ever get those feelings of inadequacy or concern that something's going to fail or that you'll look silly or how do you manage them? I, I think I'm fortunate in that I don't tend to feel inadequate before the fact. Okay, so yeah. That's I definitely feel shy and I feel nervous, but I don't, have those feelings of like I'm not good enough I can't be here I do tend to afterwards I have a really bad habit of replaying things over and over and over (laughs) in my mind (laughs) like shit from 25 years ago like I'll like I'm like oh remember that time I put the doll in the wrong spot like (laughs) was I I shit am I a shit person I I do that that's part of who I am and that's part of what I have to check so self-doubt comes with the territory I've always been like that and it's Mm. just I find if I'm doing something like a speaking gig helping the people that I'm talking to understand is the best thing I can do so I'll sit down or stand whatever it is I'm doing be like you know what I'm really nervous like I have heaps of great things to talk to you about today but I'm not naturally comfortable sitting in front of a room of 3,000 people so I'm feeling really nervous today guys if I stumble this is why and you can hear everyone in the room relax like yeah We can all chill. Not a robot. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's nice. It levels the playing field. It's yeah, like, yeah, for sure. Good tactic for anyone else who's a bit shy. I think I've done that in most of my speaking gigs. I'll get up and say, so 
my hands are sweaty. Yeah. <laughs> Breaks the ice for yourself as well. It does. I remember mm. the first one I did for General Assembly and now I always ask for head mics because they gave me a handheld mic and you were shaking no one can see this but imagine holding a banana in front of your face and then just moving it from ear to ear (laughs) (laughs) i was just so nervous and then all i could see was the microphone in front of my face just shaking and And hear your voice going (laughs) so pro tip ask for a chair and a head mark. <laughs> Do Great wonders, yeah. practical takeaways. <laughs> so the very last section is called Play TA, which is my favourite and I always run it short of time because I get really carried away. But I think, you know, along with the story of how people find their joy and find what they love and then all the challenges that come with that territory, there's a whole separate piece on who you are outside of all mm-hmm. that. And I think most of us aren't very good at separating ourselves from our productivity and our output. Hearing you say that you always need to learn and use your time to learn new things is something I'm guilty of. I think, you know, we all get very caught up in being productive and being busy, you know, achieving people and we get on this conveyor belt of achievement. But it's so important and your work is better and you're a better human and everything is better in your life when you get distance and you have a break and you find joy. So... Do you do anything for yourself that isn't related to learning or achieving? Oh, it's so tough because I'm exactly like you. Like I go for walks. That's my tune out time. And then I always put a podcast on and I'm like, what can I learn while I walk? (laughs) So now I'm trying to walk and listen to the sounds of nature. I find meditation, again, incredibly therapeutic and I have a really bad habit of forgetting to do it. But when I do... It helps. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> and doing things like cooking and baking, getting in the garden, like really tactile, kind of simple, traditional things that mm. we should spend more time doing and we don't. Training. And so I love it. Um, but it's really good for my mental health. And so I do that a lot. I used to train every day and I think it contributed to my burnout. And mm. so I really took a step back and reassessed the way that I train. Yeah. That's why my husband and I opened a gym called Frame Cremorn. Really focused on like posture and wellness in a little bit more of a... Like a holistic... Holistic way, yeah. yeah. And I think that word can mean a lot of things to each individual, but just not kicking your own ass every day because the world does that enough. <laughs> and that's the thing. I think we do get so caught up in even gym and training becomes something that's productive. It's still got a goal and a purpose. Mm. And so it's something that we have to tick off, which is why in my personal play TA kind of section of my life, training can't be there. Because for me, it's too goal orientated. I can only do the things that have no productive output, like a trashy TV show or gardening or something that's, that's tactile that you can't be looking at learning or anything you just it's just for the sake or a puzzle that you literally destroy at the end of it so there's no productive outcome (laughs) I like that approach I never thought about compartmentalizing that not work time in that capacity Mm. I like that can smash a Netflix series can smash a whole series (laughs) or a crime book (laughs) but I also think that it's in in some people's lives it's quite artificial like if you have a, a new baby or something it is really hard you've only got time and energy in your waking hours for work and then maybe exercise yeah but I think play can literally even be like a minute a day or two minutes a day it can be some silly little ritual that you do for yourself or even like an extra minute in the shower or just something where you acknowledge that there's a you underneath your working self that you present to the world as like this productive achieving human yeah. being because I think it's scary that a lot of people don't know what their interests are or don't have a second of their life dedicated to their joy yeah 
uh, and wouldn't even know what to do if you asked them. Isn't it funny how we just get so focused on work and work and work and upskilling? I noticed that with myself, like I started drawing and so now I have yeah. my sketch pad on the easel in the living room. And oh, see, that's like, so, that's such a yeah. play TA kind of activity. Ceramics and now I'm <gasps> going to try and learn to ride a horse. Like, oh my I gosh. love doing these things. And they're funny though, you can't even recall them instantly. I'm like, what do I do to play? I've been here since 6am. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I do things other than this. But you just forget and it's really easy. I was saying to Dan, my husband, yesterday, I'm like, I haven't sketched in weeks and mm. it's sitting there looking right at me and I haven't had even like the mental energy to take to my playtime yeah. like I need to. And I think it makes you much more creative and energised in your work time because yeah. you've had a break. And I think, you know, one of the ways I measure it is what are the activities that make me forget what time it is? And that's when you get into that flow state of complete different brainwaves to the, you know, mindset that you're in when you're being productive during yeah. the day and being like minute by minute, blah, blah, blah. I think you're just... a a more fulfilled, happy, balanced person when you give yourself that once a week. It doesn't have to be every day. Oh, it doesn't at all. But trying to find that inner calm is like we need to do it. Even Mm. I notice just the ritual of I turn all the lights off at night and I light candles. And so I switch to candle mode and it's like tells my brain like this is my time. Like you don't need to be doing anything for anyone else once the candles are on because yeah. it means you're like in your trackies, you're relaxing, you're having a cup of tea. And, you know, it doesn't cost much. I buy pillar candles from Ikea that cost $2 each. So it's yeah. a really cheap ritual for the self that you can do every single day and I find it one of the best things I've done. And it takes Got no it time, right? It takes no time. It's really therapeutic too. Yeah. I'm like a crazy pyrotechnic going around with little <laughs> candles. I'm but exactly it's a like ritual. my mum. Yeah, it is. It's nice. I think it's even the small things that count and it's just that you notice it when people don't have them, even not even a small one. They just get really wired and that's yeah. where – I think that is where anxiety and mental health and mental illness kind of have become so prevalent is because our lives are like planned out minute to minute and everything is stimulation. Yeah. Nothing is just flow. Yeah. That my habit I'm trying to break now is I'm a terrible sleeper and I always have been. It's shocking. So that's why I have these kind of rituals to try yeah. and calm myself down. But I get in the habit of – literally watching something on my computer until I fall asleep every night so and weird. I'm like it's, yeah it's and like I don't like is it bad I, I have this bad. attachment to like being like no you should go to sleep peacefully and like listening to I don't know like, oh we're yeah. in the wellness world people are in our world are like I don't even have a television <laughs> you know bedroom hygiene I'm like we literally watch TV until the second we fall asleep. Yeah, I'm like... I, but it works. It does, doesn't it? I was the same. I never used to have a TV. We have a TV, but it's not connected to free air. So we mm. just watch, like, docos and Netflix and stuff. And my computer and my phone, well, they don't have courts. They go <laughs> wherever I am. And yeah. I'm like, oh, fuck, I've got to stop this. <laughs> I don't think you do. Maybe I need to not feel so guilty about it. But one of the best things I did was when I was away at Glingana, there's no technology. So yeah. I had a week detox which was very much why I wanted to go I'm like I need to be forcibly removed from my computer and my phone to and break learn this to habit. be a happy human being learn to be happy learn to be okay and I just read books and like watched birds and went for walks and hikes and stuff I got home and I was on a different frequency I can't I can't explain like walking through the Gold Coast airport you know those music commercials where you see like someone and everything's racing around them <laughs> that was you it was like that you were, I was like, were there drugs in the cake yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know i feel amazing i'm like trying to maintain that so now i just don't go on social media i like maybe check once a week oh my gosh best thing i ever 
did. So when I go on, I'm actually like purposeful. What are people doing? And I look at it rather than open, close, open, close, open, close. And I don't even know what I saw. Like you engage with everything better. I engage with my friends, with brands, like everything is just better because I'm actually there and deliberately doing it. Amazing. Try it for one week, everybody. I dare you. Oh, such a good idea. Mm. Second last question. What are the three interesting things about you that people don't normally hear in conversation? Oh, wow. Okay. Which is hard because I imagine you get interviewed a lot. I do. All right. I was not prepared for this question. One weird thing about me is that I have been chased by an elephant <gasps> and no one knows that. I was about... <laughs> Just no one knows that. I don't know. I didn't come up in these interviews very often. <laughs> Um, I was like 14 and an elephant escaped from its paddock and started chasing me. Uh, so that was terrifying. It in Australia? No, I was in Thailand. Oh my God. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, this is going back nearly 20 years. This is well before we were educated on, I guess, what is an acceptable practice for having like an elephant parks and things like that that you could visit. So this was a park where you could visit and they were sort of all in their pen and this was the baby elephant, which <gasps> is still huge. And I had a batch of bananas and it was oh, like, no. me want a banana. And it chased me. And so I'm like running one way, throwing bananas in the other, trying to distract it. And then finally it decided to go for the bananas. So that's one thing that people don't know about me. That's great. I love it. What a good one. Um, The other one is that I am convinced that I was maybe like a car thief in a past life because I have terrible automobile karma. Like... If some, if anyone wants something to go wrong with their car, just give it to me for a week. Like I've had the most really? ridiculous, like broke down in the middle of Punt Road and Church Street intersection. Such a convenient Street, location. Like, right in the middle. <laughs> oh, no. Had someone slash open the roof of my old car what? and sleep inside it. It was a convertible. Ew. So I woke up to a sleeping bag in the back seat. Oh, babe, that's that already is enough. It was enough. Then that same car got flooded in an epic storm about eight years ago and so it died and I got back to my car and all my things were bobbing around inside it the wheel was up to the steering wheel no way Um, oh this is weird you were definitely a car thief moved into our last house and the car stopped dead at the garage and that was how it gave up on life like just yeah one thing after another so that's that's another thing that people don't know about me I don't know what the third is I'll circle back. Mm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and very last question, since I love quotes so much. What is your favourite motivational quote? I brought it with me because oh, it's long and I so forget cute. it. <laughs> I learned this quote about two years ago. Um, very much when I was going through that phase of trying to learn how to be more accepting of myself and mm. more accepting of other people around me. And it really stuck with me. So every time I go, it's the water quote, people are like, Bruce Lee. I'm like, it's not the Bruce Lee quote. (laughs) It is an ancient Chinese uh, proverb. I think it's like 2,600 years old. Um, I'm going to butcher the saying, but it's the Tao Te Ching, the book of the way and its virtue. And the quote is, the supreme goodness is like water. It benefits all things without contention. In dwelling, it stays grounded. In being, it flows to depths. In expression, it is honest. In confrontation, it is gentle. In governance, it does not control. In action, it aligns to timing. It is content with its nature and therefore cannot be faulted. Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. That's such a writer's quote. Isn't it? So eloquent and articulate. And I'm like, I love short, snappy quotes, and they're so fun and amazing and energizing. But this one, it's very elegant. Like, it's beautiful. And Mm. it, 
I like the sentiment of it is that water can be so many things and deals with so many things, but instead of getting angry, it just does it. Like if a rock gets in its way, it just finds a way around it. It doesn't like yell at the rock. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I, I can take some of this to be like water. And so then when I'm like, be like water, that's how we end up with Bruce Lee. Yeah, yeah. great. Not the Bruce Lee one, Not guys. Not the Bruce Lee one, guys. <laughs> what a beautiful note to finish on. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so proud of you. Can oh, I just say, like, it's so amazing. I'm not surprised because you're a wonderfully talented woman, but well, with I feel very like honoured to be on here with you. <laughs> I'm just so honoured to still be, you know, have such amazing people on the journey who have literally been a guardian through the whole process and every step of the way, like the amount of times I've been like, Jess, oh my God, what do I do with this? <laughs> What's freight? <laughs> From the very beginning, you, you've been such a shining light. So thank you so much. Oh, and congratulations you. to you too, because Thanks. watching you guys reach the heights that you've reached is just extraordinary. Thank you. Yay. Oh, I'm even more blown away than I was before. I love Jess's delicate balance between global business domination and harmonious self-reflection. It's always hard to remember that behind some of the world's leading brands are just normal people who are relatable, generous, humble, and constantly evolving. As always, please do take a screenshot while you're listening and tag at Jess underscore Hatzis or at Frank underscore Bod and myself to share the yay and let us know what you thought. And as you may have already seen, there's a weekly prize now for the best reflections and takeaways from each episode. Hope you're having an amazing week and are seizing your yay.